0: You're listening to the Safety Tribe interview series, brought to you by our sponsors, Advanced Safety. I'm your host, Matt Jones. The Safety Tribe is New Zealand's VIP health and safety community, breaking the mold and doing health and safety differently. You're listening to the Safety Tribe interview series, brought to you by Advanced Safety. In this interview, I'm joined by Deanne Brabant, senior solicitor at Morrison Kent Lawyers, and also, someone who has over five and a half years' experience as a prosecutor for WorkSafe. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this special interview that's been put together as a direct result of yesterday's announcement by WorkSafe NZ and the um, uh, the. Well, the, the the court case that has been brought by the regulator, um, Worksafe NZ has filed charges against thirteen parties after the investigation into Fakari White Islands disaster, which took place uh, a little uh, uh, well around a, a year ago today. Now, I'm very lucky to be joined today by a good friend of mine, Diane Brabant, who is a senior. Um, uh, advisor at Morrison Kent uh, Lawyers based in Wellington, Uh, Deanne and I have met on a number of occasions, uh, primarily um, during the uh, COVID-19 lockdown, and uh, I've been kept in touch ever since, Um, so it's a great pleasure. So welcome, Deanne. Hi. And so as as a senior associate at Morrison Kent, I'm sure you'll have quite a lot of Um, insight into what we can expect to unfold over the next days, weeks and months to come uh, with this particular case. Obviously there's a lot of eyes on this particular event and the way in which this case will be handled by the New Zealand courts. Um, It will have, I suspect, significant ramifications for future prosecution and court cases Related to um, the Health and Safety at Work Act. So, I guess kicking off, I'd love to just um, pick your brains on your initial thoughts on the way in which um, the case has been brought forward over the last 24 hours.
1: Sure. Um, Well, also to qualify this as well, I was previously for five and a half years a prosecutor at uh, Mm WorkSafe. And I heard on the news last night that there was some discussion about the, like, the GNS being charged and um, mm-hmm. the civil defence aspect of that being charged and some suggestion that these were quite novel things to um, be prosecuting government departments, etc. Uh, they're not. Um, so, works like the previously um, prosecuted WINS, for the Ashburton mm-hmm. shootings, and the Department of Corrections has also been prosecuted, as has defence. So yeah. th- these are not novel in terms of bringing um, to account public entities at all. They um, they clearly have looked at what they have done, what they ought to have done, and what they should have done in the circumstances, and considered whether or not they'd taken all reasonably practical steps. Yeah. So in yeah. terms of the charges, they're kind of interesting. So you've got... Uh, 30 charges and 13 people charged. Three of those are actually uh, duty holders, officers uh, of of two of the entities. Uh, so that section 44 duty in, in regards to due diligence, that New Zealand brought that into law from Australian Model Act into the Health and Safety at Work Act. In Australia, there hasn't been a lot of prosecutions under section 44. Um, there was one and they picked the wrong person, they weren't an officer, and that didn't, that didn't transpire to being a conviction. So in New Zealand, I'm not sure that I left work safe a year ago, but I am not aware of any other Section 44s having been taken at this stage. Um, mm. The way that they look at those charges are that each of those individual office holders under that due diligence duty, they are required to actually have a real grip on what's going on in the organisation in relation to health and safety. That requires them to have the right reporting processes in place and to actually know how risks are being managed and if they're not being managed, to actually make sure that they are. That includes through purchasing decisions, etc., that they actually uh, invest the right amount of capital into health and safety and that they are actively involved in health and safety. So The the, the officers of an entity must actually understand health and safety. They must be trained in that. They must know what's going on in their company and also in the wider industry that's the same, what they do. Mm. So clearly, WorkSafe have looked at them and looked at the way that those directors of those companies have actually engaged in terms of health and safety and found them wanting. And that I suspect underlying that potentially is that we may find as time goes on and more evidence comes out in the court, uh, whether they plead guilty or whether it goes to trial, that um, the entity itself was wanting and and it was as a result of those officers not actually doing their full due diligence. So Mm. that's a very, very interesting part of the charging that is well worth having a, a good look at and following closely. Absolutely. Um, I, I can't really talk too much about it because it, right now what we've got is an announcement on charges, mm. but it'll take quite a long time for the, the, uh, the fruition of that to come to pass in terms of us knowing exactly why or how those charges are made up. Mm. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that shortly and, and about the court process and, and about what to expect in terms of the way that that will carry on, but mm-hmm. the other charges are, are under Section 36, which is the standard charging for WorkSafe. They're not mm-hmm. recklessness charges under 47, they're actually under 48, so they're bounding to take all reasonably practicable actions mm-hmm. to ensure yep. the health and safety. Um, now, mm-hmm. that, that could be, and we're not sure drilling down whether it, actually of their own workers, because the charges can be their own workers or contractors and also other persons. Most likely, the majority of these are going to be in relation to other persons, i.e. the people that were on the island at the time that were there as tourists. Um, The charges may also not necessarily flow from someone being seriously harmed. So you you don't need to have someone injured in order order to be charged. There just needs to be the potential for that, but death or serious injury. Um, most likely, though, these charges are actually connected to the actual deaths of persons or the, the serious, very serious harm that they suffered. Um, as a result of that, what, what the companies that have been charged are looking at, there's a lot of sort of talk here about fines and the maximum fine is $1.5 million for that. Um, those charges. Um, they will um, if each entity is charged with multiple charges then the court takes a view across all of those in terms of what the appropriate sentencing will be and they start off with the starting point so these might say sit around and and and, and forgive me because i don't know the facts but uh you know so they set around eight hundred thousand as the starting point if they plead guilty early they get a 25 percent reduction and 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 just right at the offset. That's because you've saved um, having a trial, you've saved putting everyone through all of that, and you get credit for that. And then there's all these mitigating factors that come into play about the actual offending itself, causation, et cetera, that actually could reduce things down a bit further as well. Mm. Um, So for the most part, fines at at the moment with WorkSafe are are sitting anything from 350,000 up to 600,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is potentially what you're really looking at. Sure. Um, if you look at Pike River they um, they did a cumulative sort of form of sentencing so that they, their starting point was a lot higher under the old act that mm-hmm. um, it was only hundred and fifty thousand for the similar chart
0: yeah
1: so you can see how big it it's got now compared to that. Um, mm-hmm. The other aspect will be that once. If they do get to sentencing, so they either plead guilty or are found guilty, uh, then you've got reparation in play as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that will be um, fatalities for WorkSafe, anything from 150,000 in reparation per fatality. Uh, then there's also a top up for the percentage of the ACC payment that so you you get a payment from ACC when a partner dies. Um, mm-hmm. That would be for those who were at work at the time and also also those who are new zealand citizens so um yeah so there's a top-up that then also gets applied in terms of reparation because acc only pays 80 percent of uh, 60 of the 80 percent of your salary to to the family and that's capitalized over a five-year period or you can upload that all at once Mm-hmm. um and payments for children as well so the children and other persons that are impacted also get covered by reparation. so mm-hmm. um though, those sort of things are in play there also um so it could be right. quite a lot of money that they're up for um at the mm-hmm. end of the day um and it'll be very interesting to see just sort of how this plays out i've sort mm-hmm. of scratching my brain over the DNS ones etc and all i can think of is that um Perhaps they clearly weren't monitoring as appropriately as they should have been. Yes, and yes. That they didn't have the right alerts in place. And they certainly didn't have the right measures for alerting others to um, the Thank risk you. on the island. Um, that That's just scratching my brain thinking, how would that look? Um, potentially, there could be other things in there as well about just not having the appropriate systems in place to actually do mm. that.
0: Um, Definitely. And someone's just fired for a, a, a question which I think is probably on a lot of people's minds is around um, we had the uh, they've described it as the assessment body all right so they've issued the New Zealand Adventure Activities with a certification to allow them to, to operate um, and there is a, a sense that perhaps accountability is, is arguably being lost because we've got the regulator being the um, uh, accuser on one hand um, and on the other hand is potentially involved in the case itself and is there a risk of... No,
1: they not. So okay. in terms of an adventure activity, mm. um, there is a registrar of adventure activities at WorkSafe. They're mm. quite sort of independent of those mm. who make decisions or investigate these sort of situations where there's been harm. Uh, mm-hmm. So that the inspectorate is split into two areas, there's um, the general inspectorate, which is the assessments part and the, and the auditing, and then there's the investigations part and specialist intervention. Sure. Yeah. Um, so so in terms of assessing a, a venture activity, uh, there's a lot of things that come into play with that. So there's uh, auditors and verifiers mm-hmm. that verify that adventure activity and look for non-conformities. So they check all of those things and they verify them as being correct. So this happened with Cathedral Cove with the diving, for example, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. they were prosecuted as well. Um, They had been through an assessment with a verifier also, but Mm the incident itself fell outside of all the things, right things were in place in terms of what had been verified for the adventure activity. But what happened on the day was actually solely on Cathedral Cove for what they did and didn't do in terms of fitting the um, diving suit and the breathing apparatus. So I think that in this case, um, it probably would be quite divorced to go to the verifiers and say that this incident that happened, um, you're liable for it because you certified this adventure activity as being safe and appropriate because mm. what they ordered on in the time is the systems, etc that have been in place. Most likely, these charges actually arise out of them not following the systems that should have been in place.
0: Yes, yes, yes. So literally, the the time that they're there to do their assessment is a snapshot in time. So it's, it's just purely based on what they're seeing and observing at that point in time, and they cannot be held to, accountable to the decisions and choices that the business decides to make you know Well, it's about
1: foreseeability as well so even the, yes. these charges so you look at what's reasonably practicable that's section 22 of the act mm-hmm. yep. reasonably practicable also like so you, once you go through all the steps in terms of what's reasonably practicable it's also mm-hmm. what's foreseeable mm. yes. so you, you you know so the the whole thing about the a, a provider of the adventure activity and mm-hmm. and you know, I I don't want to dig too much into this because it is before the courts and um, ultimately the the decision maker on that will be a judge. Mm. Um, But in terms of the entities themselves, Mm. you know, they they probably needed to have good processes in place for actually determining risk in respect of going to the island itself. Mm. Yeah, um, a few things occur to me just from watching the news, etc. That they needed to be particularly careful. That if they, you know, even when they were arriving, I understand there were some sulphur changes and changes in the colour mm-hmm. of the pools on the island. Mm-hmm. And so the real question around that stuff is, you know, what did they have in place that when things didn't look quite right, what what dynamic risk assessment was there to actually mm-hmm. go? No, we're pulling out. We're making the call now. We're not going to go. Um, So it'll all be very interesting as it plays out. As I say, we don't know all the facts. We don't know the reasons why. Um, A few people have spoken and said that they think it's a bit of a shock, the number of charges. But um, Mm -hmm. WorkSafe are very good at working out what the the minimum charges that they need in terms of actually dealing with the offending so Mm, i would say they'll be reflective of the the breadth and length of the offending that went on and it's covering off all aspects of it um
0: that's a really interesting insight yeah because yeah you're right a lot of people will be thinking my goodness that's that's a lot they're really going for it but actually um in context and, and from your experience actually what that's suggestive is actually how um significant and how um broad um, the, uh, the 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 number of stakeholders and the influence that they had uh, may have actually been leading up to the to the incident. It's really interesting. each
1: of those charges will be bespoke to each of the entities that actually have mm. been alleged to have committed mm. the offence. So when they when they set them out in in the um in the charging document, mm-hmm. they set out the allegation, but then they put what practicable steps they should take but each one of those will have specified on the JT document the exact steps that should be taken, and, broadly speaking, and Mm. that's informed by industry practice, it's informed by guidance that's available, it's informed by experts. Mm. And in this case, I would would not have expected them to have charged without having received advice from experts about these things. So um, that's what informs those. And they have a robust process, too. They go through a legal opinion. They get legal advice. No doubt they talk to the Crown about this as well um, yes. because these are quite significant charges. So there's a level of scrutiny over that. It's not just an inspector going, I want to charge all of these charges. There's actually a full legal opinion written, and I'm sure it was a very long one, um, that, that backs that up. Uh, yeah. Another thing I heard on the news last night, like, Matt, too, that I thought was worth kind of... I find for people. Mm. People were, um, and the families, and rightly so, were quite mm. upset about the fact that the charges had come very close to the anniversary date. Yes. WorkSafe has a year to investigate. Mm. This is a big investigation. Mm-hmm. They, they could have got an extension of time, like they did mm. for Pipe River, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't, and I think. Kudos to them for actually getting it done in that space of time. Mm.
0: Yeah.
1: They understand they had a very big team working on it in order to actually achieve that, yes. and to to interview the number of people that they would have had to interview and mm. gather all the information together, etc. To do that in that space of time is very commendable. I think.
0: Mm absolutely yeah I I was really surprised by the number of investigators involved Uh, I think I I heard this morning on an interview on TV3 uh, there was in excess of 20 plus investigators involved Um, so they're clearly pouring a great deal of resource time and energy into getting this over the line before that that 12-month deadline which is yeah quite phenomenal Um, we just had a a question or a point just in regards to the reasonably practicable um, uh, piece and I think this will keep it will inevitably keep coming out, particularly when you know a lot of the um, charges are based around Section 36. So, I'll do my best at trying to define reasonably practicable. Um, uh, bear with me. <laughs> oh, do you want me?
1: Do you want me to do that, Matt?
0: Well, I'll, I'll give it a crack, and then you can you can correct me if you like. Um, so, <laughs> reasonably practicable. Um, ultimately, it's um, the the point in time where we've identified the hazard and the associated risk. So, the likelihood of that. Um, event occurring and the consequence if that event was to occur we then need to put in place the controls you know um, aiming for elimination in the first instance and then the minimization uh, from isolation all the way down to Um, uh, uh, minimization of PPE and bits and pieces in place. Once we've done that, we've then got to um, determine whether we are comfortable with the residual risk that's left over and whether we need to implement further controls, uh, whether that's policy process or or hardware. Um, The last consideration um, after all of that has been said and done is the cost in which those controls and those defences will incur toward the business. So they need to take into account what other industry figures are um, using to uh, reduce risks to their places of work um, and also uh, what um, national and international uh, peers, industry bodies and regulators require of them also. So hopefully that's Half decent definition. Well, sort of, sort of, and I
1: don't want to hmm. correct you, but what, no, you, no, what, what Matt's given you is a really um, good combination of mm. section 30, which mm-hmm. is about hazard and risk assessment, and also mm. uh, um, segueing into what's reasonably practical. Mm. Um, what's reasonably practical is the, the objective measure about what controls you put in place and how you decide whether it's appropriate or not. So it's whether you've taken all done all that you can to ensure the safety of people. Yeah. And Matt's right that um cost is not is the last consideration because the reason why cost is the last consideration is it must be grossly disproportionate before you actually decide not to implement that control. So if you had, for example, um had a choice of a guard to put on and it was it was, say, $1,000, and you could put one on for $5,000, but the $5,000 one would actually stop somebody's whole hand being trapped, whereas the other one actually only you know, stops you up your fingers getting trapped. You're expected to put, pick the $5,000 one because it's not grossly disproportionate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see there's a question there about the legal argument around um, reasonably mm-hmm. practicable there won't be in legal argument of unreasonably practical, one, because it's actually, um, it, it's a concept that actually came from the 92 Health and Safety um, and Employment Act. It's been refined slightly for the health has one but the, the reason that it's been refined is because over time, case law brought the things in that are actually now encompassed within Section 22. So the courts are well used to using um, reasonably practicable in all mm-hmm. sorts of situations. So, mm. reasonably practicable was considered, for example, in relation to the Ashburden shootings. Okay. And um, there have been some quite quirky cases that WorkSafe has taken, and quirky but but necessary. And in Ashburton shootings, one, the winds one, is is absolutely a good example of that that people looked and went, why should they be charged because somebody came in and shot someone? But that was all Mm -hmm. about putting the right measures in place to stop that from happening anyway, and it was actually foreseeable. So in terms of this, they were going, natural disaster happened. But one thing you do know Mm -hmm. about White Island is that it is actually an active volcano.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: And there was an adventure activity running out of there. And so all the steps that need to be taken need to be in light
0: mm.
1: of that. Um, someone's just put in about as far as reasonably practicable. Mm. That's not a, a concept that's in HAZWA. That's actually in the major hazard facilities and also petroleum regs. Mm. Um, there's not a lot of case law on that, actually. That's those regulations have actually not really been prosecuted to an extent. And Mm. as far as um, reasonably practicable, that's actually not as high a bar as um, so far as reasonably
0: practicable. Mm. Thank you for qualifying that. That's a really important point. Let's take a moment to get to know a little bit more about the safety tribe. The Safety Tribe is a private Facebook community that has exclusive access to subject matter experts, templates and cheat sheets, live high energy group calls that are all designed to fast track your career and help you become the best health and safety leader you can be. To find out more and to get yourself a free copy of Turning the Tide, simply visit Um Yeah, that's super interesting stuff. Yeah, thank you great conversation thank you everyone who's putting comments in so far this is really contributing to a really great um great recording so thank you keep them coming um really interesting stuff so um so the charge parties are due to appear in auckland district court on this december 15th so on, on that day, what, what can we expect to see on the six o'clock headlines? What what, what can we, you know?
1: Be... Nothing much, actually, and it may not actually happen that date. So what oh, happens okay. with a lot of these cases is um, that there's a request for like initial disclosures provided to them. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, that's not a lot of information for an initial disclosure. That's witness statements things like that, that photographs mm-hmm. and... Uh, maps and plans and various things. So that's provided, um, the summary of facts is provided to the entity and person that's been charged and sets out what they've alleged to have been charged and the charging mm-hmm. document sets out what the charges are they've They, face. they um, the, in terms of the criminal process, that first call can be adjourned by a registrar. So what can happen is that people may not be ready or they... Um, mm-hmm. Want to request further disclosure, etc., before they enter into a position of whether or not they um, and that they're going to plead guilty or not. Mm. Um, so that first call potentially could actually be adjourned, um, okay. and they may not actually turn up at court at all. Mm. If it does go ahead, then um, they may plead guilty, but I'm, I'm picking that there's probably going to be about two or three calls of it before you end up with it, some form of plead, pleading.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then if you plead not guilty, then you get full disclosure. So you get everything of the, the whole investigation.
0: Sure. Now the
1: reason is um, that initial disclosure is enough for you to make a decision about whether or not you've done what's been alleged against you, that's what Parliament decided. Mm. Um, full disclosure is when you decide that you're going to plead Not guilty and you're going to defend it and then you get the investigation file and everything. Don't get anything to do with the legal advice or that sort of thing, but you get the investigation. It's a full investigation against you, with some redactions there, but pretty much everything. If they plead not guilty, then you're looking at various sort of steps along the way. There's case management, there's various other things, and there's um A lot of preparation time that goes into that. Um, You're potentially not looking at a trial till maybe even twenty twenty-two. Wow! Really? Yeah, the courts are pretty chocker. Um, This Mm. would be a a, quite a long trial, potentially Mm. five or six weeks, if not more. Mm -hmm. Um, That getting that sort of time in the court is actually quite hard. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot that goes on in between. Um, Mm. There'll be discussions no doubt between the lawyers on each side about refining things down or whether and there'll be attempts to try and resolve any outstanding issues and to see whether or not you can actually get a guilty plea on some of these charges mm. even if that happens but yeah um, and even if you do plead guilty at the outset there's still room to sort of have a discussion over the summary of facts and whether you actually agree on what's been alleged against you. Um, and mm. if you don't get an agreement on a summary of facts, you can go to a dispute of fact hearing as well, where you actually, um, you've pled guilty, you've accepted that mm. you've committed the offence, but mm. um, you don't agree with the, what, the, what, the, um, what WorkSafe has said about that offence mm. or what you allegedly did then yeah. you can go challenge yeah. that through a dispute of facts hearing. So there's lots of sort of positions and quite a long time before you actually end up at a sentencing. If they plead yeah. guilty, you yeah. potentially got a sentencing, say they plead guilty beginning of next year, you potentially have a sentencing maybe around May, June next year. Um, okay. That sentencing yeah. will be quite involved too. Um, So you're looking at the, the sentencing that um, went on for the Christchurch um, mosque shootings.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. probably going to be very similar to that given the number of victims that are involved and the number of victim statements etc so managing that and bringing that through court will be quite um, a process in of itself Mm. yeah and some of them are overseas and facilitating that Um, yeah yeah
0: that makes sense um gosh yeah I, it's probably uh, watching the news last night i was kind of like oh great you know we're gonna actually see some movement and momentum but i also you know naively assume that the machinery can move quite quickly but there's so many factors and actors involved in the case that yeah, yeah it makes sense that it's gonna take some time
1: and because there'll be multiple is so that all of the mm-hmm. defendants will all have their own lawyers yeah of course. So there's multiple processes going on um, and managing that um, mm. with different lawyers and adjournments and trying to keep things all connected. And that is actually I've done multi-employer and prosecutions and um, multi-PCBU prosecutions. And they're, for a prosecutor, they're a nightmare mm. um, in terms of the logistics and the administration of it. So, yeah, mm. doing that stuff is um it becomes you know it, it, it's worthy of charging but it's actually there's logistics about it that make it quite difficult as well yeah
0: of course of
1: course um someone's um, got a question there mm, for us
0: um yeah so yeah. The,
1: so the the worksafe report is mm-hmm. um would be available under official information request post sentencing and once and once all the appeals periods are over you mm-hmm. can request it. It will have significant redactions, though, because of privacy, mm. et cetera. So names and that would be gone. The names of inspectors won't be there and various things won't be there. The report itself, um, it, it won't be as informative as maybe you think it might be mm. because sure. it's it's a uh, it's with reference to the evidence that sits underneath it but yeah I mean the entire investigation file could be um requested the problem for that is WorkSafe is likely to charge you for it given the amount of this right. there's a paper that will be involved in it and yeah, also yeah. they they can decide whether or not it's appropriate to be giving it to you yeah
0: yeah yeah so I guess we, we can't expect there to be a uh, a findings paper it's not going to be like um the Pike River where we had the... Um, uh, Royal the, Commission. The, yeah, the two main papers that came from that. Well, there might
1: be this. a commission after this too, who knows. But the yeah. um, the main thing that will inform you on that will be the actual yeah. sentencing note or yeah. um, if it goes to trial, then the the, yeah. the judgment in relation to the verdict. Mm. So those things will set out. The court will talk about what's reasonably practicable, they'll talk about Mm. the facts, they'll talk about what was before them, they'll talk about Mm. the victims and the impact on them. So the sentencing notes will be the thing that's um, Mm. important and interesting to read, Um, Mm -hmm. very much like uh, Judge Mander's one in the Christchurch shootings. Mm. Um, I would think any judge that's doing it would spend quite a bit of time and a lot of thought and dealing with the victims and dealing with how everything played out. So, yeah. so those documents, are, and they're available generally online and they're actually available through the court anyway. So everybody has mm-hmm. the right to request those things from a registrar mm-hmm. at the court Yep, so you can get those.
0: It makes me kind of appreciate the fact that, you know, I've I've got access to have conversations with you um, in regards to this topic as well. So, you know, having subject matter expertise to help us interpret and understand the processes and in future the findings will just be invaluable for for the profession in general. It's going to be awesome. Uh, Another question that's come through is whether there will be a possibility of enforceable undertakings being applied uh, with this case.
1: Well, it could be. You can have them, um, so one in most instances a forcible undertake or enforceable undertaking can't be considered until somebody's been charged. Um right, right, yes. there's no forty-seven charges mm-hmm. here. So if there was a forty-seven charge, then an enforceable undertaking's off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but there aren't. There are section forty eight charges. But mm-hmm. um so policy in terms of enforceable undertakings is on their website as well as their um policy in relation to prosecutions Mm -hmm. and they're well worth having a read because not everything is actually suitable for an enforceable undertaking and there's a number of factors that are considered when determining whether or not um it will be even accepted to be considered for an enforceable undertaking so there's a step first where. WorkSafe yeah. assesses you and determines whether or not you should actually apply for one. Now, them saying no to you doesn't mean you can't, but it means that they've already given you an idea that perhaps you're not actually in the frame. I've seen them, though, get over the line after actually being told no, they can't, but okay. um, it takes quite a bit. Um, they would have, had, have to do um, an incredibly good case for a possible unta- undertakings here. Um, potentially GNS, etc., could actually look towards those, but I I can't comment because I don't really know Mm. how their charges work, or um, and it would be a bit silly to talk about them when I don't actually know the facts either, but yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and we've had a, a question again, it's probably quite difficult for us to, to talk to, to it, but I guess it's just a general sense of where things lay is whether you have any thoughts about what might happen in the adventure tourism industry whilst this plays out in the courts um, uh, now and into the longer term.
1: Well, this is the kind of a, a limited part of the adventure activity. Mm. So, what, what's akin to White Island potentially doing things up on Ruapehu, if it or Ngarahoe, if they were active? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the whole of the industry that's impacted by baccardi. Mm-hmm. So yes. the industry itself is highly regulated. Mm-hmm. It's subject to a lot of audit, and they and the industry itself is. Um, very proud of, of meeting those targets and meeting the requirements of the verification. Um, it, when, when the adventure activities um, regulations came in, there were a lot of adventure activities providers that, yes, it's a pain and they've got a lot to do, it, et cetera, but they actually saw it as being a good thing because it stopped people from operating that that weren't capable or appropriate. Mm-hmm. So I don't think that it has an impact at all on the adventure activities um, and and, and that whole um, regime at all. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it has an impact potentially around um, unforeseen or unexpected um, incidences that actually may, although this obviously was Mm -hmm. foreseeable to an extent, that may impact uh, on those activities being run. Yep. Um, I think, like, years ago, um, there was some rafting and canoeing with children where at, during, um, I think it was the Edmund Fame, um, mm-hmm. where um, there were deaths because of slips and because of the weather itself and not actually managing those risks appropriately. So there's some things that have been analogous before that have been mm-hmm. um, Prosecuted, um, and those things were seen as being foreseeable as well, and the mm-hmm. right measures weren't put in place. And you know, some of these things will actually be um, just choosing not to actually do the the activity on that day. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of adventure activities like helicopters. Um, well, although the, the aviation etc. is covered off by C- CAA, mm-hmm. but um, they just decide not to go at all if the weather actually looks slightly. Wrong, yeah. mm-hmm. um and so it's about not putting the money over people but actually deciding that the risk is too high
0: yeah definitely yeah so i mean uh, and for, uh, for what it's worth my thoughts around that would be um if they haven't already is to get some external verification of the suitability suitability of their systems the appropriateness of their existing risk assessments um, and also challenging them on their emergency response planning, um, watching the the White Island um, documentary that TV Free put out last week um, I was really shocked um, by the, the immediate emergency response and um, the horrific experiences that the first emergency responders had to deal with. I, I was just blown away by it really felt, it might be proven to be wrong, but it felt like there was a serious lack of emergency management planning uh, for the operation and operations really. Um, so, I mean, that will, I'm sure will, will come out um, in life over the, over the next months and maybe years ahead, but.
1: It's, um, it's sadly something that I've seen mm-hmm. a lot um, mm-hmm. It's something with clients that I talk to them quite a bit about, particularly mm-hmm. forestry clients, mm-hmm. yep. um, about exit and egress plans, about what to do in an emergency, how they're going to transport people out of there. Um, there were certain things about the island that, you know, like you have to come in by a helicopter or a boat, whatever. Um, you how are you going to get off there quickly if you actually something goes wrong while you're there? And, and I guess yep. that's probably where this is coming from is that mm-hmm. there was nothing in place once so things were actually looking bad. But the real yeah. question, I suppose, is why were they there in the first place?
0: Yep.
1: On that particular day. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that will come out in evidence, I guess. Um, they'll The other side will say what they want to say about that and about their systems and their processes. And whether or not they're appropriate and experts will no doubt be weighing in all over the place about all aspects of it to say whether or not the systems were appropriate and each of them may have different views about it.
0: yeah yeah well, I guess that leads to the question around whether and I'm sure this is going to be tested in court anyway but in terms of the robustness of the um, when you have multiple uh, PCBUs um, all operating in the same space um, whether the act is robust enough to deal with it and, um, and also um, is it clear cut as to who's responsible for what now, obviously that's all going to be tested but I mean in terms of your instincts around whether the act itself is robust enough to meet the challenge what's your thoughts on that?
1: Well I, I particularly like the section 34 juicy but I just think that mm. pe- people don't necessarily deal with it appropriately. They mm. think that they have a discussion, or they just say, hey, mate, I, I'm doing this, and mm-hmm. is that OK? Um, yeah. I'm big on people actually having good processes around actually working through with each mm. other about what controls they have, about discussing the controls and saying why they think that theirs are maybe better than the other parties, mm-hmm. D- discussing who they're going to adopt, talking about who's going to call work safe if there's an incident. Mm -hmm. My advice is actually all call WorkSafe because you actually all have the obligation to notify. And and you don't want to quibble over whether or not you were the one that was meant to notify. Just all notify. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you. You know, um, you you also want those things recorded because um, my other side of my job, apart from being a health and safety lawyer, is I'm a civil disputes lawyer. Mm-hmm. And term, I think we talked about this over COVID about some of the things that I was doing there, Matt, with that okay. but um there are issues around your contract that you have if you want to walk off that site and not perform the duties under that contract mm-hmm. or not do your part of the contract. So you might have been the helicopter driver that you contracted into the inventory activities company, but you mm-hmm. think it's not safe and you want to pull out and are saying, no, go ahead, you need something in place too to ensure that you actually can actually walk off and say, no, I notified you of this health and safety issue, and I need to not be here. Because the other other thing, of course, too, is that workers have the right to refuse work if it's not safe. And -hmm. so... That's got to start at the top too, that the entity that they work for has got to make it very clear that if things aren't safe, then don't do it. And that we'll deal with the consequences with the other entity, with the other PCBU about that, you just leave. That that's got to be sort of the thing. But yeah, I mean the I think the 34 duty is good. I think it's better than what we had before. We used to have a section 18 duty with contractors, etc. And It wasn't as clear as 34 is about what you needed to do. There was a lot of guidance around um, pre-qualification and working through these things. A lot of this before you start a contract is really about actually doing your proper due diligence. If you're going to hire uh, a company to do a particular aspect of work for you and it's part of your chain, then you want to make sure that they are actually gold standard and they do things right and the people that work for them are actually competent and capable. And so that's got to be part of your due diligence before you even enter into contracts.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I know uh, we've talked about this in the past as well as we seem to continuously and strike this question or this concern around how do we manage our contractors and the relationships with the other pcbus and the shared space of work and it's like well what was your original conversations what were the original agreements long before you actually became involved in each other's work um it seems to be a step that's quite routinely missed um, and it comes back to the importance of the pre-qualification and the importance of getting the agreements right in the first place uh, before the work well
1: the other end thing end. I've seen Matt, is that some people's systems are just too onerous too so you mm-hmm. can go to the other yeah. extent that
0: mm-hmm. you
1: require lots and lots of paperwork to be completed mm-hmm. and my concern yeah. is that people get bored with it and they just tick things mm-hmm. off and they don't go through the processes yeah. um, and Paperwork, uh, So, oddly enough, you, there's no requirement in HASWA to have things written down. There's some certain things that do need to be written down. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But in terms of everything else in terms of health and safety, you just have to have safe systems of work, etc. That doesn't mean that you have to have SOPs or JSAs. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have them, how do you prove mm-hmm. that? what what you've told your workers and how do you also deal with employment issues when people are not complying with health and safety, et cetera, if you've not made it clear what's actually required to be done. And if you're dealing with another contractor and you're the principal to that contract, so if you're the one that actually all the money's flowing from, I would say that you're the one who has more control. If you're the one who sets up the contracts, then you set the rules. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be really sort of, a very simple approach to it is it's my job that you're doing and it's under my contract and if you don't follow the rules then I'm not going to keep on working with you mm. yep. now yep. that's quite often the case about quality of work etc but that ne- needs to come into the psyche around health and safety too mm. so you're not yes. wearing your, I've told your worker five times to wear as PPE you're not doing anything about it that work is not allowed on my site until they actually wear their PPE. Mm
0: that's right um, yeah. yeah so and again it comes right back to the leadership so if the culture is not right from the top uh, then it's the the, the words and policy and the words and writing are basically meaningless if they're not enforced yeah 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 so important yeah. Um, oh you got me thinking about something else it'll come back to me cause there's, I've had a very similar conversation just in regards to um, who's most responsible for what often and you alluded to it was the fact that if you follow the money generally you'll find who has the greatest level of uh, influence and responsibility on a shared place of work Um, that's right yeah the the, the point I had was in regards to um, the vast majority of New Zealand um, isn't um, the largely populated urbanized Parts of the country, uh, when we're talking about businesses having to make decisions about who's best to be working with them, contractors, subcontractors, sometimes or often they may not have the choice or the luxury of being able to select between a number of contractors. They're stuck with the same people in the in the same neck of the woods. Forestry would probably be a very good example of that, um, where it's very difficult. Although there's some for...
1: very strong rules with forestry, like the ACOP mm-hmm. has. In- um, there's two ACOPS. There's one for the principals, and there's one that applies across the board. And the role of a principal in forestry, um, in terms of pre-qualifying crews, etc., is very well set out in the ACOP. Um, the thing, the thing that I like about forestry, which I w- wish applied across industry as a whole, is that one of the golden rules is that no nobody is allowed to be in the forest unless they are actually um, competent and qualified, at, mm-hmm. or have the right level of experience, and if mm-hmm. they're not, then they must be under close supervision and or documented training. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very clear that um, you know the level of competence that's required, and also that they've got to be drug free. So those mm-hmm. things are actually um, embedded in the approved code of practice. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Um, and- uh before i ask the next question um thanks for also reminding everyone about the 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 fact that um the regulator simply requires a safe system of work it doesn't require a door jammer document that's not referred to or used by anyone because it's just too burdensome and uh, too complicated it can be very simple um so long as you can be confident that you are documenting and you're verifying what's being said is actually getting done in, in, in the first And instance. you're
1: providing the right information to workers, because that's also mm-hmm. a requirement of um, Section 36.3. Uh, Section 36.3 sets out all the things about that system of work, provision of information. And then mm-hmm. there's also um, the Grim Regs in terms of um, Regulation 9 about training, etc., mm-hmm. as well, and provision of information. Um mm-hmm. So yeah, and you just got to look at also what workers you've got you know um, can they read? Uh, is English a second language? then you actually mm-hmm. segue and you do something else. Yeah. Um, lots of um, I do some work with a firm consultancy and they realized that a lot of people were illiterate and couldn't mm-hmm. read very well. and so they've moved to having pictorial um, and like cartoons that show what right. to do in wow. terms of hazards risk, et etc. So that, mm. that, that makes, or taking photos and showing various mm-hmm. things so that it's, it's actually easier to explain those things to
0: workers. Yeah, brilliant, love that. Yeah, because that, that's often a question I come across as well is how do you define competence? And, and, and there's lots of neat ways in which to do it. it. It's not, I don't think it's clearly defined anywhere really. It's just-
1: Well, um, it is in the, in the forestry ACO, so And again, I like it a lot. It's oh, okay. um, consistently demonstrating competence. Yeah. Okay, so it can be competence. Um, competence must actually be in forestry audited. So they do a tree selling assessment, they look at people's cuts, etc., and the incompetence or whatever comes in. So they do that on a regular basis, and then when they see the skills lacking or dropping off, then they retrain. So, yeah, and
0: just interest is is the ACOP is that freely available, or is that something that's
1: that's online? So that's the um. Approved code of practice for forestry operations, um, yeah. health and safety and forestry operations. Yeah. Um, probably should explain a little bit how approved code of practices work in terms of what's reasonably practicable.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Uh, yeah. The Act sets up the ability to have approved code of practice, and that's they are available in industries where there's specified mm-hmm. risk. So you've got forestry, you've got cop for forklifts. Mm-hmm. There's um, there's other ACOps as well for um, pressure vessels, um, boilers, all sorts of things. So the, you look on um, WorkSafe site and it'll have set out the various various ACOps, and then also underneath that is the guidance, like the best practice guidelines, etc. But the thing about an ACOp is that compliance with the ACOp the legislation actually says compliance with the ACOP is seen to be doing what was reasonably practicable. Right. So if you follow the steps in the COP, you'll never be wrong unless, of course, the situation required you to even do more. Um, and, and and that can sort of be set of regulations as well because regulations sort of inform what's also reasonably practicable. So, you know, if you're applying the grim regs and the hierarchy here, Mm -hmm. Um, because you need to, because you've got specified Mm. risk, then um, that will also be seen as taking all reasonable practicable steps if you've actually followed what the regulations require.
0: Brilliant. After um, this um, interview, I'll grab a copy of that and I'll make it available wherever this is being shared because I think that would be really valuable for everyone just to have a bit of a squeeze out if they haven't already. Um, And I guess probably like my final final thought question would be in regards to um all business owners um in new zealand and beyond right now um seeing what they saw on the news last night what what would they what should they really be doing today and and uh, perhaps um before the end of the year um to give themselves some assurance that they're not missing anything glaringly obvious do you think
1: well the thing that concerns me often is that PCPUs um, are well aware of what they need to do in relation to their workers, their employees, Mm -hmm. but they often forget that they've got a duty to other people. Mm -hmm. So some of the cases that I've prosecuted under um, 36 um, 2 in Mm -hmm. relation to other people, they just have nothing in place at all in relation to members of the public or other people that may be found in that workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, They just are not even on the radar. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: retailers, et cetera, well, there's been lessons learnt over time um, in relation to the obligations to other persons. Um, under the old Act, there was briscoes and other cases where boxes have fallen down and harmed people, et cetera. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: everything that you do and everything that your workers do that impact on the on the health and safety of other people, Mm. You need to be considering that and considering what's the best way to do things. Um, if you're you're going to be staging work and you're doing some work that's high risk or requires working at height, things might drop, etc. Thinking mm. about timing, what time of the day should that be done? Are there actually mm. pedestrians and people in the area? Should we do it on a weekend and close everything down? How do we actually um, separate people off from the hazard or the risk? Um, yeah. But yeah. because other people can be more random than your workers in terms of mm. when they walk through a work site, et cetera. So that's also making sure that things are secure, mm. your site's secure at night when you're not there. All the things that are reasonably practical around those things are, are, are very important. But, yeah, other persons seem to go under the radar, and a lot of health and safety policies don't seem to consider those
0: at all. mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, I've I've seen heaps of (laughs) examples of that, especially on the weekends, uh, walking through the uh, local town or through the city where temporary works have been set up. But the the barrier just seems to be a couple of traffic cones, which is quite terrifying. Um, Yeah, yeah. Okay, brilliant. That's really helpful. Thank you. Um, and then I guess uh, in an ideal world, everyone would be re- uh, reviewing and refreshing their their health and safety management systems as part of their ongoing routine schedule.. Um, uh, and this Ooh, just,
1: well, this not way. just that, but like you know, looking at their hazard and risk um, assessment mm-hmm. registers, looking back over their near misses and their mm-hmm. incidents that they've had. Mm-hmm. considering now whether there are other controls that perhaps weren't available a year ago mm-hmm. that they could actually look at investing money in mm-hmm. in the future, mm-hmm. um, you, your job is to actually keep an eye on what's available and see whether or not it should be implemented. And that goes right up to the board. So that's part mm-hmm. of the due diligence duty too, is ensuring that people in the organisation have got their eyes on what the best things are in terms of the right controls. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you're looking at buying um, buying new forklifts next year Mm -hmm. and you would be wanting to think about in advance, well, which ones are the most quiet, which ones have got, you know, the better Mm -hmm. protection for someone if they got hit or um, which ones have got the better um, sensors and lights and all of those things. And Mm -hmm. you could... Be doing some due diligence around that stuff and saying you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah because as we say you know I, I, it's got to be grossly disproportionate for you not to pick mm. the, the safest the less noisy mm. the-
0: yeah absolutely absolutely Riky. lots to take on board Um so I've got a feeling that we'll hopefully be able to pick up on this conversation again um, in the next weeks months potentially years to come um, until we see the, the completion of the the cases and also um, some of the learnings that we can extract during that process so um, I'm sure we'll also be doing interviews on other topics and subjects as they come up yeah. so yeah, it's brilliant. So once again, uh, Diane thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been really incredibly insightful. Um, uh, just quickly share this. We thank you, note from Jules. Thanks, Jules. I'll just quickly check that up there. Um, yeah, lots of thanks coming through. Um, you're welcome, team. So yeah, look, we'll um, we'll definitely book some some time uh, in the new year to catch up and to see right. what the latest is on this. So um, until then, thank you. Have a a wonderful Christmas break and uh, I'll see you in 2021.
1: Oh, yes, that will be great. And um, hopefully we'll be in a bit of a different world, maybe a vaccine and all sorts of other things coming. Let's be
0: hopeful. Yeah, yeah. I've I've got high hopes for next year. Um, Despite everything that's been going on, I think um, the uh, the potential is hanging thanks for listening to the safety tribe interview series brought to you by our sponsors advanced safety the safety tribe is new zealand's vip health and safety community breaking the mold and doing health and safety differently i'm your host matt jones don't forget to subscribe and leave a comment your input is the fuel that keeps the flames burning until next time stay safe